week. I'm so excited about it. My wife told me the other, the other day that I only have two faults. One is I don't listen very well. And I, I didn't catch the second one. <laughs> but, but that means that if anything happens in our house and it's not one of those two faults, then it's not my fault because I only have two. That's exciting. Good to know. That number will probably be substantially higher next time she talks to me. But I can't count the number of faults. Colossians chapter 2, we left off in verse number 8. Oops, I'm in, I'm in Ephesians. There we go. That looked more familiar, the Colossians here. In chapter 2, now Paul's starting to caution the believers at Colossae about these false teachers and these various cults. These cults were made up of renegade Jews, if I can use that word, renegade, they're, they're, they got enough Judaism that they want, but they don't have it all. They just, they just want everybody else to, to share their misery, trying to follow the law. And these other Greek uh, philosophical type things, they were rampant back then. Uh, and, and they kind of would join up or hook up and they would share and then they become this really ridiculous religion that they would try to push out there and folks would subscribe to it unfortunately. So he's trying to warning the, uh, the Colossians about these deceptive teachings. We've battled that today. There's deceptive teachings uh, out there and people uh, propagate this stuff and people, people hook onto it. It's, and it seems that the more outlandish it sounds, the more people seem to believe it. I mean, you can't tell them about the free gift of salvation. That's that's too easy or something, you know, but they'll, they'll buy in there. you got to swim across the Atlantic or something, you know. They'll, they'll do that if it's something that they can participate in. They feel much more uh, apt to do it. And that's unfortunate because it, it really um, uh, capitalizes on the works. You have to do something. So, so Paul's uh, talking about this. In verse number 8, let's read that. Let's have a word of prayer first. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the time we have, Lord, to study your word this morning. Father, pray, God, you bless this lesson in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse number 8 of Colossians chapter 2. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, Paul's been working up to this moment all along. And we... Chapter 1 told us how great Jesus was and, and how he started. He's the head of the church, all this stuff. And now in chapter 2, he's starting to say, we need to watch out. I keep looking over here like there's no one here. Um, but um, he's been, been uh, preparing this. So now he opens up this argument or his, his arguments that he's going to make throughout this chapter on, on countering the dangerous ideas being spread in Colossae. And what are these dangerous ideas? What he said here in verse number 8. Philosophies, vain deceit, traditions of men, and rudiments of the world. The Jews got into this thing where they did things by tradition. 
they started to adopt over the years all these traditions. They weren't part of the law, but they would try to enforce these traditions on people. You know, we've always done this, now we're going to keep doing it. And it wasn't written down, it wasn't one of the 613 precepts that God gave them, but it was something they just started up with these traditions, and he just carried them along, and then these things still lived. So spiritual vigilance is required in response to these enemies of God who often go tolerated and unexposed. If we were to look at the seven churches in Revelation, we'd see a few of them that were totally off the deep end, wouldn't, wouldn't we? Teaching idolatry, sexual immorality, false teachings, tolerance of heresies, worldliness, lost their first love and the purpose of the church, uh, questioning God's word. They weren't called out until God called them out. Everybody else just tolerated it. And I think people are guilty of that these days. They tolerate everything because this is this age of tolerance unless you're a conservative or something, yeah, or a Christian, yeah. They don't tolerate that. But they expect you to tolerate them. So the heretic strategy is to take you captive. They want to spoil you. They want to take over you by these uh, philosophies and, and vain deceit traditions and all this stuff here. And they want to turn you from worshiping God or believing in God or trusting God into something else. Uh, does God always answer every prayer immediately? No, but those are there. Those there are those there that say if He doesn't answer right now, God's not answering your prayer. Prayer answer might be wait. It might even be no. But they'll come and say, "I'm praying for this, but God won't won't hear me." Well, that's because, you know, and here they go. They attack God. They blame God. And who knows, it might be your problem. You know, if you're living in sin, your prayers might go as high as the ceiling. You know, but, but they have a chance where they can blame God or, or they can discredit God, and then they'll take it, and they do it. Therefore, they, they take you captive, or they turn you away, or they help you, make you not trust God. They make you believe in something else or do thus and so or join this group or whatever it is. They use that stuff, and they're very good at it. They're very good at it. So here in chapter 2, Christians run the risk of being enslaved by these false doctrines and practices. Why? Because they're not prepared to say no. And that's Paul's purpose right now, educating them, teaching them, and telling them what's out there, what's coming at them, and helping them to say no. That's why I, I keep saying this, and I, I really believe it. you got to know what you believe, and you got to know why you believe. you got to be able to show people what you believe. That's important. When they say, oh, you shouldn't, you know, you, there's no eternal security. God doesn't, you're not, first time you sin, you lose yourself. You can show them right here in the Bible. Right. Swing over there to 1 John chapter 5. We know. You know, and, and people need to understand what they believe and why they believe it and be able to show it to folks. And that's what Paul's trying to show, show these folks here. Understand what you believe. Know it and be able to 
show it. So these heretics capture and enslave people through the weapon of deceptive philosophy. There's a lot of disgruntled church members. I don't know what you got. I guess we're gruntled. I don't know <laughs> what you got to do to be disgruntled. But people go somewhere, or they have this, these blogs everywhere about disgruntled fundamental Christians, and they're attacking their own church. And, and the people that are in it and people that are leading it, they're, they're, they're against them, and people buy into that. And just disgruntled Christians, it doesn't take much to turn somebody away. They don't like the song, don't like your tie, they don't like people that don't want to be here, that aren't looking for Christ and a blessing, find any excuse at all. Well, I went once, but I got offended because being implied I might be a sinner. How dare they, you know? So people are funny that way. It doesn't take much to, to turn people away if they're not really dedicated to be there. They don't know why they're, they're not prepared to, to hear the truth. And they turn sometimes to these so-called Bible studies. Fol folks will go to Bible study instead of church. And these Bible studies are dangerous. People from all walks of life go to these things, and they're led by these, these cults or these disgruntled preachers, teachers from other churches, other denominations sometimes, and they just lead you astray. Amen. You leave there, and you don't know what you believe. And you don't learn the Bible. You learn their ideas, their viewpoints, their opinions, and you walk away with that. And you're not fulfilled. You're confused. Back in this day, the Greco-Roman world was full. It was just enamored with all these various philosophies. You can read about Paul in the book of Acts. Everybody had an opinion. Everybody had a philosophy. And they, he, he gave him his speech. And they said, oh, this, new, this is something new. Everybody wants to hear something new. So these were still abounding back in that day. Everybody had to come up with something really wild and ridiculous. And folks just wanted to hear it. Popular speakers, local leaders thought these folks, these, these speakers were, were uh, important and worthy to expound their ideas to the whole community. And they would gather around and hear this new thing. Right. <coughs> and, uh, you know, and I say beware of blogs. They're out there. False teachers. Anybody ever listen to Joel Olstein? Speak for 30 minutes, help you feel good about your sinful condition. You know, uh, uh, he doesn't do anything for you. The weather's fine, the wind is blowing, everything's wonderful, but you're still lost. You know, but those, that guy's a gazillionaire. He's the highest paid preacher in America. Televangelist. Highest paid. But his message is nothing. I mean, it's just... It's just fluff. Everybody gets all oh, so great, so wonderful. God loves you, even though you're bad. Don't don't have a bad day. You know, you can always always something good. You know, but you walk out there as lost as you were when you came in. There's no message there, and that's what these folks shared their human philosophy. There was no hope in that. There was no message in that, and that's it. It shows up today in these. Um, Deceptive marketing ploys. 
I'm the visual aid. Have you ever fallen for, for a deceptive marketing thing? I'm the guy to come to. I need this because I was told I need that. Because it's got X, Y, Z, and or whatever it is it has, and I'm, yep, you know, whatever it is. You know, I, I fall for that. Used car people used to chase me around to get me to buy another car when I was a young guy. I didn't change oil. I changed cars. <laughs> you know, I did it all the time. I can't name all the cars I've had when I was younger, <laughs> you know. We kept a car for 12 years. That was a milestone. I was going to write to National Geographic about that or somebody because <laughs> we usually get rid of cars. We never kept one that long, you know. But, boy, I was always trading them, you know. Didn't like the color after a while. Didn't appeal to me anymore. Everybody's got the same color. What do you do? Go to Earl Shive and get a paint job? No, you buy a new one. So, anyways, that's me. But same thing back then. Everybody falls for this stuff. But there's no hope in this false teaching. Look at chapter 1, verse number 5. Let me review a couple of verses with you. Chapter 1, verse 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. You don't hear that hope in the word of these false teachers and these philosophers. They don't give you hope. Where's their hope at? It's something inside of you. It's the synergy. I learned that word back in college. It doesn't mean a thing. It means something back when I first, you know, two horses can pull, you know, more than one. They can pull a lot more than one. They can pull more than two. Synergy. But everybody uses that word wrong now. It's just something because you can't define it. They use all these words. They can't define it, so they use it all the time. People say, I want that, you know, and uh, they did the same thing back then. The gospel delivers the knowledge of God. Look at verse number 10 back in chapter 1. Paul said that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the what? Knowledge of God. When we come here, we're going to increase in the knowledge of God. Amen. You're going to. And it's not because of the messenger, it's because of the message, it's because of the Bible. Amen. We're going to increase in knowledge if we apply that to us. And one more thing here. Where does the fullness dwell in these philosophies? There is nothing. It, in Christ, all fullness dwells. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Dwell. You can't say that with these TV evangelists. They're in it for the money. I mean, that, they don't care about people. They're not a pastor. If you have some emergency in your home, I'm sure they're going to come by, and or maybe they'll text you, look up, look up, you know, or power through it, whatever they, their buzzword is. You know, that's what they're going to tell you to do. I'm not going to give up any tea time to come, TV time to come look at your, visit you in the hospital. I've got to be on the air in 20 minutes. You, you, you know, I, I can't be there. You know, it's, it's sad, but that's the way this world has come. So the problem underneath all these high-sounding ideas lies only in human philosophy. The real source of these ideas are, is not merely human 
but stem from the influence of so-called elemental spiritual forces we call satanic. Satanic forces. Devil would just love to have these big worldly churches because it keeps you out of this church. And if you can get a band and a motivational type speaker there to make you feel good and get all ginned up and have, you know, it's great and, and he can keep you out of here and then you go home and have the same sad life you had before. Living in the same sad conditions. But you felt good for a little while, didn't you? Why don't you just play a CD after church? You know, but they keep you out of here. And that's Satan's idea. Keep you occupied. We were talking this morning about sports. Keep you occupied on a Sunday watching sports, or you have to watch the game, or you can't tape it and watch it on Monday because you already know, you already know what happened. You know, they've got to keep you occupied so you're not, you're not in church. Yeah. They, that's what they do. They, they keep you persuaded that you, you can't be there. So there are spiritual uh, traditions is what they have. They're just of human origin. The real source of these ideas is not merely human, but, but like I said, it stems from the devil. Look at, um, look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we know this, this passage very well. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 11. You know, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's what we're talking about, the wiles of the devil, all this philosophy and teachings and false doctrine. Verse number 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's who we're fighting against. It's, it's, it goes real deep. These are the, the, the powers that we have to stand withstand. It's not just a guy. It's Satan and his entire um, entourage, his entire world that he he has here and and it goes as high as you can go it goes very very high it goes to the highest levels but this armor we have to wear helps us withstand that so these ideas and perversions of the truth are from the flesh and demonic origins we got to realize that there are far more cults today than there were back in Paul's day. A lot of them were the same. They just got intermingled and mixed up and copied each other and added to and took away from. So it was all, you know, it was all involving you need to participate and you can be self-actualized. You ever heard that word before? Heard that back in college. You have to be self-actualized. That's when you realize that you are, I don't know what it is, you've arrived. You see yourself as great. I have self-actualized. People said that before back then in the 80s and 90s. I am a self-actualized, enlightened person. Really? How come your shoes are untied? And they look down. <laughs> You're not that much into it, are you, buddy? Yeah, really. <coughs> but, um, you know, they, 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 reached, they reached this pinnacle where they think they're supposed to be Scientology teaches that. You've got to reach this pinnacle, and then when you're there, boy, next step is God. They're right there. That's what they push. People buy into that stuff. 
devil plays on our egos. The next couple of verses here, verses 9 and 10, talk about the fullness of Christ and the church. Look at verse number 9 back in Colossians chapter 2. We just read this. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Paul provides the antidote, the cure to all of this false teaching, this disease of this false movement, by reviewing the origin and the meaning of Christianity. Folks forget what they thought they knew or they think there's more to it so they have to explore all these other uh, beliefs to get fully actuated or fully fulfilled or whatever it is they, they're looking for. They, gotta, they, they keep seeking the truth and it's right there, been there the whole time. But they keep wanting to go beyond that truth and Paul says, let's get back to Christianity, basic Christianity. Amen. And it begins with the personhood of Jesus Christ. Every cult attacks the personhood of Jesus Christ. It attacks the deity of Christ. Look at all these cults, even the biggins. Catholicism, all these, they attack the deity of Christ. He's been replaced with someone or by something else. Amen. As much as they can belittle him, stamp him down, then he doesn't have any importance. And that's what they do. They attack the deity of Christ. Every single one of them do. Yeah. He's not God in the flesh. He's not God. And they attack that, and then you're left saying, where, where do I go for the truth? Well, you come in here. And do all these rituals or whatever it is you think they got they got to make you do, but people forget the true origin of Christianity. It's Jesus, the personhood of Christ. He really lived. The teaching of the heretics is empty. Fullness, it says here, resides in Christ. The idea of deity living on earth was called Shekinah, from the Hebrew Hebrew word shaken. It means to dwell. In the Old Testament, this referred to the temple. Remember the temple, the tabernacle? Specifically the Holy of Holies. Who lived there? God did. The Holy of Holies is where God resides. You didn't dare walk in there unless you were supposed to be there and you fulfilled all the stuff you had to do before you went in there. Or you didn't walk out alive. Some serious stuff. God dwelt in a holy of holies. So in this same sense, Jesus is the incarnate Shekinah. Uh, let, me, let me read uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He lived here, he dwelt here, in as God in the flesh, Shekinah. And verse 10, back in our text here. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You can't get any more completer than complete. He's the head of all principality and power. 
He made all the principalities and powers. Well, how come he doesn't kill the devil? Keep reading. Keep reading. You know, this is going to happen. God's got a plan. He showed us what it is, didn't he? Don't get impatient. It's going to happen. Uh, the devil has no power over Christ. He has no power unless he has permission from Christ. Read Job. So Christ resides in the fullness of deity. God's people are filled in him. There's a lot of action words in this second chapter of Colossians so far. The faithful are uh, encouraged. We're united, it said back in verse 2. We're, we're, we're filled with knowledge. We're rooted, built up, and established. Uh, thankful and filled with God in Christ. Why would anybody want to be satisfied with half-truths? And things that people rip out of context which is a pretext, they make it a new religion or something. I've heard this before. I don't remember the verses right now. I have written down on my other, my other Bible. The you know, Bible says uh, Judas went and hanged themselves. Another verse says go and do thou likewise. You know, that's Scripture. But it's out of context, isn't it? So we've got to read stuff in context. A lot of folks rip stuff out. Didn't the Bible say this? Yeah, but it was talking about this, not that. You can make it say anything you want it to say. Uh, welcome to false religion. If you don't know your Bible, or things don't sound very scriptural to you, you better check them out. That's how you tell. So Christ is the head of the church, supreme over all creation, including Satan. And guess who knows that? Satan knows that. Satan knows that. He knows what his limitations are. And he has them. But folks are into this stuff, and it's because of their carnality. They take off chasing these cults or whatever it is that they want you to do. You can be enlightened or whatever they tell you that you can be because they're carnal. And they, they, they do it in the flesh. Oh, I could do that. I could be that. What did I tell my friend? You know, they do that. Christ retains absolute authority over demonic forces. There is no dualism, as some people believe. Jesus and Satan competing. There is none of that. Amen. Satan doesn't compete. Satan complies. Right. He can't compete with Jesus. Satan and Jesus are not equal commanders under God, as some believe. They're not equal Jesus is in sovereign control. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. I'll just take a little look ahead here. Verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. This is going to happen. This is future. He, he's going to spoil them. When an army got spoiled, that doesn't mean they got cake and cookies. What does that mean? They got defeated. Amen. That kind of spoil. Okay? They were spoiled. Now, verses 11 and 12 talk about the description of a Christian buried and raised with God. Verses 11, 15, 11 through 15, Paul is very creative in his writing here. He's providing a 
these unique word pictures, which he likes to do, of what conversion entails. What happened when you got saved? So the first set of these analogies is verses 11 and 12. Let's, let's read verses 11 and 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. What does all this mean? Let me see if I can confuse you a little bit here. I mean, help you a little bit. So the first one talks about the resurrection of Christ and, and how it's baptism, our salvation, and baptism, it reenacts that. Okay. These verses add the experience of forgiveness and the defeat of sin which took place on the cross through His resurrection. You all experience, if you're saved, you experience the forgiveness of sins. At the time, being a babe in Christ, you may not have appreciated that, but as you get older, and as I get older, Appreciate that more. As we look back on our lives, boy, I really, man, it, this is a gift you can't outgive right here. Salvation. Amen. He forgave all my sins. And he continues to do so if I confess them. So this is important. Verse 11, in whom ye are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What does that mean? So he kind of builds on verse number 10 here, and he uses these two metaphors uh, describing what it means to be a true follower of Christ. He uses circumcision and baptism. Circumcision used to be a covenant right, R-I-T-E. Not the kind of right you fight for, just a right, okay? And it distinguished what? That's exactly right. That's all it did. It distinguished the two races. Only two races. I don't care what TV says. There's only two real races. Jew and Gentile. And circumcision distinguished that. That's why the Jewish, even Jewish Christians, wanted the, wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. That's a Jewish right, not a Christian right. But they insisted on it, and they pushed that all the time, okay? Hung over from their Jewish days, okay? So it's a covenant right, distinguishes two races. So we understand what that means. It says, made without hands is used in the Bible to um, talk about heavenly realities. Let me, let me give you some examples of this. Things without hands. We understand what that means, don't we? It means God did it. But let's let's look at a couple of these here. Let's uh, let's go turn back to Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven. Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven. This verse talks a little bit about the circumcision and what it what it means here. Ephesians two eleven. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles, in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision, remember that's what the Jews called them, these uncircumcised, called the uncircumcision in the flesh. You recall that by 
those that were called the circumcision, that it might be that which is called by the circumcision in the flesh made by hand. See, anyways, they, the Jews called them the uncircumcised, so the circumcised called the uncircumcised uncircumcised. Okay, so that they distinguished between the two races. Now, made by hands. That circumcision was made by hands. Did God require that back in the Old Testament days? Yes. It's in the law. You had to do it if you were a Jew. Had to do it. Okay? So that's the basis. Let's look at Mark chapter 14, verse 58. Things made without hands. I'm going to show you these so we can see that we are circumcised in heart without hands. Mark 14, verse 58. <coughs> we heard him say, I will destroy this temple which is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made, what? Without hands. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just got a couple of these. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Yep. Verse number 1. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. No matter what happens down here on earth, our house may burn to the ground. We still got another home. That's good to know, isn't it? One more, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. But Christ being common high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So we see these things that are heavenly acts of God, all these things he did by the power of God. Okay, now back to our verse here back in uh, Colossians. So this circumcision in verse 11, made without hands, is talking about a heart change. In circumcision by hands, what was removed? Sinful flesh, spiritually, okay? <coughs> Putting off of the body of sins of the flesh. That's what he circumcised. He cut that out, if you will, okay? He separated that out for us. We are not subject to the flesh anymore unless, unless what? We want to be. Okay, that's a decision we make every day. Every thing you do, it's a decision we make. Okay, that's that's under our control. You can blame the devil all you want to, but all you have to do is say no and get thee behind me, Satan. Amen. You know, I did that once. I think he pushed me down on my face and said, <laughs> "You know, that wasn't that successful." But anyways, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> But uh, it, it's our decision. Talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, we talked about don't squeeze the limit. We talked about, you know, someone does something 
that makes you mad. You chose to get mad. Then a cop pulls you over. You're really nice. Yes, sir, officer. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was speeding. You put it by sign. You know, that, that's it. Exactly right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I can be getting mad at him. Throw you in jail. You had a decision to make. Officer, I've decided not to get mad at you today <laughs> for the sole purpose of not going to jail. He says, make my day. So we make that decision. Anyways, that's, that's all I was trying to get. Now, verse number 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein he also arisen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So our salvation is exemplified by baptism. It's a picture, isn't it? It's a uniform. It's something that we did. It displays what we did. Through salvation, what did we do? We died with him. And then we were raised up with him. By what? The power of the operation of God. God raised him from the dead. So he turns to this analogy of baptism and uses the same same image. You turn back to turn back to Romans chapter six. I'm going to show you an example. He's talking about this back in Romans. Romans chapter six. Look at verse three through five. Romans chapter six, verse number three. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness in his, uh, of his resurrection. It's like Jesus, baptism, that picture. He died, we were buried, he rose again. Pastor doesn't just leave folks down there. He'd go to jail. Okay, <laughs> you got to be there until I see some, some bubbles come up. You know, you know, we don't. He didn't do that. It's being resurrected, raised again. Sometimes just in time, huh? <laughs> you know. Um, so, but Romans chapter six verse five, it says in the likeness of his resurrection. Back in our text here in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 12, buried with him in baptism, we also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. In chapter 12 of Colossians chapter 2, it's not a likeness, it's a participation. There's a difference there. We are risen with him, not like him in, in Romans. We didn't raise like him, we raised with him. It's participation. You're risen with him. So likewise, instead of the simple allusion to Christ being raised from the dead, Paul says you are risen with him through the faith in the operation of God. God raised us up from the dead. So after dying with Christ to sin, it is natural that in Christ the believer is also raised with him into a new existence. Your Christianity is a new existence. How do you know that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? 
new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. New existence. You may not know it right after you get saved, but as you grow as a, as a Christian, you have a different viewpoint on things, don't you? You have a different viewpoint. All this stuff going on gets me kind of spun up, but I know in my heart, I know this, I tell other folks this, but I still get spun up because I choose to. Um, don't yell at the cats so long as you're going to start yelling at the TV. You know, they are. you know, we know, our viewpoint is, we know this is part of God's plan. And we know it's going to get worse. Because it has to. And we know in our minds that's what's going on. It's just hard to go through it. And it's happening so fast now. I mean, 2,000 years this stuff didn't happen. Maybe a little bit of taste here and there. But now, boy, ever since a couple, three years ago, boom, 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 boom. Things are really going downhill, and things are changing fast. We can't keep up with it. We can't put it in our minds. What is going on? It's happening. It's getting closer. It's accelerating. Okay? So the operation of God is the incredible power of God that raised Christ from the dead and also raises us to newness of life. We'll stop here today, and we'll start with verse number 13 the next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the lesson. Father, pray God you'd you bless our church services to follow. Father, pray God you bring members in, Lord. Pray God you bring visitors in, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.